0: Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, historian and former intelligence officer Mark Stout on World War I
1: and intelligence in American memory. The largest battle that the United States ever fought was in World War I. It was the Meuse-Argonne campaign. And you know. Not a lot of people remember it today. I mean, not every historian of World War I knows about it, but we're not exactly a big slice of the population, let's put it that way. One of the key things that comes out of World War One is that it came more and more accepted that it is ethical to have peacetime espionage most of our major wars have had big bumper stickers, right? The Civil War reunited the Union and ended slavery, right? And World War II defeated fascism and and ended the Holocaust. Solid narratives. Yeah. And well, what was World War I exactly? Can you sum that up for me, David? (laughs) Yeah, there's no bumper sticker that gets it the same way. No.
0: Mark Stout, welcome finally to Chatter. Well, thanks very much, David. It's great to be here. I, I say finally because I've known you for... I don't know how many years now but for quite a while but I also know of the uh project you've been working on since the beginning of time That's about right yeah which has been a uh, a labor of love I hope but probably a labor of frustration as the years went by but it's finally borne fruit And let me tell you how glad I am to see that backside of this project but but I'm happy to talk about it Well we don't talk about backsides much on here but the backside of the book <laughs> is almost as good as the front of the book which has a, a brilliant image from World War One of, I think, aerial reconnaissance and a, like a, a very, very tall map with people placing on it. And I'm talking about your new book, World War One and the Foundations of American Intelligence. Yeah. When did you start thinking about
1: this topic and why? Uh, 2006. So uh, if you want to do the arithmetic, that was 17 years ago. And I was looking for a project to write a PhD dissertation in history in. And um, I met with a mentor of mine, a, a really fine intelligence historian named Dave Alvarez, mm-hmm. uh, over beers, and uh, of course. Um, and he suggested to me that I do something with U.S. intelligence in World War I. And my immediate – I didn't know much about World War I, frankly, at that point. Um, and my immediate reaction was, oh, that's ridiculous. That must have been done to death because sure. I did know something about World War II. And there are huge, like, bookshelves full of books about U.S. intelligence in World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll look into it. And there's very, very little, it turned out. And that was great because what that meant was that almost everything, not everything, but almost anything that I wanted to write about U.S. intelligence and World War I would be new. There are little bits and pieces of it and important bits and pieces of it that people had looked at. But the, the, the literature was very, very narrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, uh, yeah, it turned into my Ph.D. dissertation. Um, and then that got 100% rewritten. And uh, I kid you not, and and longer, uh, and became this book, which is uh, finally out uh, just a few weeks ago as as we speak now.
0: Well, congratulations. Thank you. I, I want to use the book essentially as a, a springboard
1: to talk about some wider issues
0: of World War I and u s. cultural memory and and all of that. Your background for for writing this, however, is not only the dissertation research and then the years of uh, throwing away all that actual text and rewriting the text but also experience in the national security community. Talk about that a bit.
1: Yeah, so I spent, uh, in my first career, 21 years in the national security community, and of that, 13 was in the intelligence community, mm-hmm. um, all but one year um, on the analytic side. And I worked on military intelligence analysis, though aimed uh, at Russia, primarily. Um, but yeah, so that's that's one thing I brought to this. Um, and, I, and I think it's actually, um, important to have at least some intelligence historians who have a background in intelligence mm. um, Now on the one hand the, the the very reasonable critique can be that you know maybe they're too sympathetic yeah you're biased to right? their subject yeah and sure. and 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 I you know I own that I mean I try to be as objective as I can but you know I, we're all you know captive of where we came from. Uh, that said, on the other hand, I think people who've worked in the intelligence business have an, a comparative advantage in terms of reading intelligence documents and understanding what the writers meant mm. uh, and what these doc- what role these documents played in the process. Now that is certainly learnable by people who weren't in the business, but I think it comes more easily to some people to people who have some experience uh, in it. So yeah, I was a was um, uh, in the intelligence community for thirteen years and did some other things in the in the national security policy community. And then to simplify a little bit between careers one and two, hmm. I was the historian at the International Spy Museum for three years, and then I started teaching uh, graduate students, which uh, I, I've done for something over a decade now. Um, hmm. For a long time, as a full time basis, and now just merely as an adjunct. So, I believe you are the second historian of
0: the International Spy Museum on the podcast. Vince was on talking uh, Vince, about yeah, the
1: my history of
0: cryptology in the museum and and all of that, and maybe we'll get uh, Andrew on as well. Be the, great. the current. Uh, Historian, although his his title has changed slightly since your day, they've slightly shifted they've things. They've shifted around. I'm not
1: sure precisely what his title is, but yes, he's he's another successor of mine.
0: Yeah. So you bring all that experience to this, and I guess maybe I'll, I'll challenge you a bit on that uh, that assertion uh, in one limited way that there is a strong potential for bias of people from the community doing Intel history, and and maybe that's true of 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 me and others who have written about very current events, right? things recently, because you've interacted with some of the, the actors in the play. I would guess that, that you, with the temporal distance on this, I mean, I'm not going to talk about your age, but I doubt you actually served in World War I with Pershing. So you probably don't have a lot of direct memories and biases based solely on your experience in the intel community, because it is so different than 100 plus years ago.
1: Well, that's a very good point. I, I think you're absolutely right. And certainly um, a lot of the um, specific topics about we, which people might be biased, uh, you know, or have their roots in the Cold War or the War on Terrorism. You know, so should the CIA have overthrown Mossadegh in 1953, or you know, uh, were our you know, intelligence tactics in the War on Terrorism justified or not? And all those sorts of things. And right, none of that, none of that was around in World War One. Right. Indeed, CIA wasn't around during World War One. I. Um, I think. Uh, so yes, I think it's a, it's certainly a lesser problem, uh, potential problem, uh, w- with regard to World War One. That said, I mean I think there are a lot of people out there who, um, now as then, question the, the moral foundations, the moral you know rectitude of the, of the very business, um, mm-hmm. or certainly a parts of it at any rate, um, espionage, covert action, and counter and a lot of the counterintelligence, the counterintelligence and counter espionage stuff. So I don't think it's. You know, wholly devoid of potential for 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 bias, um, but yes, it's it's a whole lot less than it's than if I was working on you know recent CIA history, for instance. Sure, sure. Well, this conversation in
0: part is therapy uh, for me, or maybe a re-education session, because I recall now several several years ago when my book came out on the PDB. A wonderful book, by the way. Oh, Everyone should buy it. S- stop. That's not that's not why I mention it. I mention it because of the opposite, which is at the beginning, as a way of saying intelligence tailored to the president and really focused on that, really is a very modern story. Yes. But the way I phrased, <laughs> the way I phrased the way into that, I, I re- recall distinctly, I had a line about you know the U.S. intelligence system had lagged far behind others, and World War One only moved the ball forward slightly. And you just said something to me like. David, you should have talked to me first. And to be fair, in the language around that, as we'll get to later on, it was really focused on intelligence analysis and more specifically tailored briefings for presidents. Uh, but even then, I felt like, yeah, I, I need to be more careful with these sweeping generalizations about periods of which I know very little. So first of all, thank you for, for saying that at the time and calling me out. And and here is your chance to slap me in public repeatedly by giving me all of the details to show that no, World War I did move the ball forward significantly to the point that you make the claim in in your book, World Mm -hmm. War I gave birth to modern American intelligence. Yes. To assess that, we have to do a few things. Uh, First of all, we have to see what American intelligence was like before World War I. We have to talk about what happened just before, during, just after the war, and and then why you can say that American intelligence, the way we see it now, was moved forward enough that it's not a later period. That yeah. really is definitive. So l- let's go back to not the beginning of Washington and Lincoln and all of that, but to a period that most Americans, even national security professionals, don't know anything about, the 1880s. And that's what you point to as the true seeds of what we now see as a modern American intelligence, mainly based on two organizations, the Navy and what was then the War Department. Talk about the bureaucratic institutions within those, how large they were, how important they were in a general sense during the 1880s into the 1890s.
1: Yeah, no, thanks for that. Um, So the, the circumstances when you get to the 1880s, are you know the United States had done a United States, and actually also the Confederacy had done a lot of actually pretty sophisticated intelligence things in the Civil War. The problem was uh, that uh, on the U.S. side, on the on the Union side, that basically all got forgotten because that was done at the level of armies in the field, which right. all got demobilized and didn't exist anymore. It wasn't done in, at primarily wasn't done at the Washington level. And so basically everything went away with intel after the Civil War. Mm. And then the U.S. military, both the, the Navy and the Army, enter this period of, dold, uh, you know, of, of the doldrums, right? Mm. And they are very much not keeping up with world standards on what, you know, modern of the time militaries do. In part because they
0: could, right? There was no direct... Right challenge from great powers in Europe
1: to the United States in the 1870s. Yeah, uh, minimal, yeah. minimal. I mean, there there was thought that maybe we'd, uh, you know, have to fight a war against Britain, which would be a war in Canada. But, you know, these were all pretty darn hypothetical and not real high-threat scenarios. Mm-hmm. Of course, the U.S. Army was engaged in um, fighting, you know, Native Americans out to the to the West. But that wasn't a big challenge the way that, you know, fighting Britain or later fighting Germany sure. or even, for that matter, fighting Spain was, mm-hmm. right? And, indeed, there were a lot of discussions for a while about, like, what is the U.S. Army even for, <laughs> right? So into, this, so into these doldrums, uh, you know, during these doldrums, there starts to be a military reform movement in both the Navy and the Army right, and the, the War Department. And they're um, looking to European examples. And um, they are seeing that um, leading European powers, most notably the Prussians slash Germans, um, were starting to build general staffs, right, that, that would aggregate, that would pull together data and do detailed planning for how wars were going to work, right. And that um, the Prussians and others were starting to have components of those general staffs that, that looked at not how many trains we could mobilize and get how many troops with how many rifles in how many hours or days to a particular location, but how much of that the enemy could do. Right, right, and those right. you know we, we know today as intelligence offices, intelligence officers, and they started arguing for a wide series of military reforms of which let's create intelligence offices for the Army and the Navy, or the War Department and the Navy mm-hmm. was part. Um, and that was really how this was was born. Uh, the Office of Naval Intelligence was the first, 1883, mm-hmm. and then the War Department, you know, not to be outdone by the Darn Navy, <laughs> followed suit in 1885. Um, but these were very, very small organizations. In terms of people in Washington, we're talking about tiny handfuls, you know, uh, three, four, you know, depending on exactly when you look, three, four, five, a dozen maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, Though, in addition, they did include the military and naval attachés, naval officers and army officers who were attached to U.S. embassies abroad to be military diplomats, Um, but also to collect what today we would call overt human intelligence just what they pick up in the course of Working with and alongside their host militaries, still very few of those. But still too, very though, few of those right? too. Attachés yeah.
0: weren't as common at that no, time. No, I
1: mean you almost, almost, you know, almost any country the U.S. has diplomatic relations with these days, which is almost all of them, mm-hmm. we have an attaché of some yeah. sort or another, and often multiple. Yeah, back then again, it, it was another, you know, sort of modest handful of attachés as well. Wow. So all right, you end up with two handfuls of people, maybe being the you know U.S. intelligence. At you the see, time.
0: that's interesting because as a sense of scale, if you compare the Army or the War Department and the, the Naval Department to the size of today's Pentagon, of course, there's a, there's a huge difference. But even then, I would say the percentage of people involved in intelligence is way smaller because we do have a relatively large intelligence community um, and attache system. So even based on the relative scale, it's, it was still an immense small group doing this, right? No,
1: that's absolutely right, and, 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 and that's a reflection of how, over time, we in the United States have come to see intelligence as being a more and more important function of government. Mm.
0: Um,
1: absolutely. So, yeah. Well, one thing that I, I discovered by,
0: by reading your work was the, the work of a, a seminal figure in the 1880s and 1890s. Now, maybe it's because I haven't studied military history as much that he never came um, across my radar. And that's Arthur Wagner in his book. Talk about
1: that a bit. Yeah, Arthur Wagner was one of these reform-minded officers. He was an Army officer uh, who um, uh, much of his career he was uh, teaching at Fort Leavenworth and the various names for the schools that were were at Fort Leavenworth these days. It's the Army's Command and General Staff College. Mm -hmm. Um, And he wrote um, a couple of textbooks uh, that became basically the standard text for um uh, for US Army officers at West Point and in the National Guards mm-hmm. and that sort of thing one was on operations um, and the second one was published in 1893 if I recall correctly and it was called the service of Security and Information so in the in the in the Argo of the time, uh, the service of security was was how an army in the field maintained its security against Mm -hmm. things like surprise, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the service of information was how it gathered information about where the enemy army was, what they were doing, what direction they were moving, all that sort of stuff. So most of this book is about things like pickets and cavalry patrols and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But there are a couple of chapters which are really very forward looking where he talks about Okay, at the level of the War Department. So we have, you know, my book is about stuff going on, in the intel stuff going on in the field. He doesn't use the word intel, but that's what it is. Um, But the War Department in Washington, if we're Mm -hmm. gonna fight a good war, they need to have collected and collated and put together a whole lot of information in peacetime about the overall strength of the enemy that we're likely to face and about maps and, you know, all all kinds of stuff. And that was new, right? Yeah. At least we, we, I can't think
0: of a prominent case in the, what, 100 years before that when, in, when a, a U.S. figure was putting all that together and saying, we need this central function.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, and he also talks about um, sort of more picky uni detail about intelligence operations that um, aren't, necessarily military, more to the point, aren't exclusively military in their nature. Okay. Um, you know, the importance of open source, uh, reading the adversary's newspapers. Sure. He talks about um, you can assume that the enemy is reading the, the newspapers from your side, so they can be conduits for disinformation. Mm. He talks about the use of spies and tactics associated both with spies, with, with espionage, and with counter-espionage, a whole series of things. Uh, he actually even talks about uh, it's actually, I think it's added in uh, uh, the revised edition later in the 1890s, but talks about um, um, tapping telegraph cables to intercept communications, um, signals intelligence, as we would call it uh, these days. So there's a lot of really forward-leaning stuff here beyond uh, just, you know, infantry pickets and cavalry patrols so that you don't get surprised in the in the night out in the field.
0: Your characterization of this is that a lot of it is what we would see now as kind of anodyne or very simple but it did it did preview a lot of the modern conceptions of intelligence, yeah. especially on the trustworthiness of spies. Even though some of his characterizations are odd, that officers who spied were, of course, of exalted character and distinguished courage, but civilian spies were basically the scum of the earth.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's it's so interesting. There's there's very much. Um uh, distinctions made between classes of people yeah. here. Um, so, yeah, uh, indeed. And I, and I just add that Wagner's book, The Service of Security and Information, was being used in the U.S. Army into the 1910s. Mm. Um, so it had a you know really long shelf life, and um, he was very much thought of as one of the Army's big intellectuals. Much to his frustration, because what he really wanted to do was have a command, right. and instead, no, he got he got pegged as the smart guy, you know, at Leavenworth or a leader at the at the War College here in right. Washington. And he really wanted to be out in the field leading troops. But well, that's fascinating. that was not his lot.
0: That, that means that this book, in its many subsequent editions. Was was used and and therefore officers who were in World War One were familiar with it because yeah. it was around for what twenty plus years something like that. Yeah. So an entire generation plus of yes. officers would be familiar with its concepts.
1: Now, in fairness, it would it would be the officer the World War One officers who came from the regular army, yeah. who would um, have been familiar with with Wagner's works. Right, um, um, and they were just a small part of the of the U.S. Army, but also of course they you know, spread their knowledge to the gazillion conscripts who joined the U.S. military during the war. And the first edition of this book, because
0: there were many subsequent editions yeah, over like 17 time. 17 or 18, something like that. Uh, are you – do you have the first edition?
1: Uh, I do not. It is out there in Google Books in full text. I think my mm. personal copy is – don't quote me on this, but maybe the 13th or something like that. I'm, so. now. Now
0: I'm just curious, like how many copies of the original – are out there and are any for sale? So, intrepid listeners, if you're out there on eBay or some of the specialized rare book they're sites, they're not cheap,
1: but they're not insanely expensive. I've oh, seen them okay. on uh, on used book sites. So.
0: Oh, wow! So it is possible. Okay. Um, if anyone's listening, that's a great holiday gift for David Priest. <laughs> um, so, moving past Arthur Wagner himself, we as Americans tend to think of very recently. We don't. We don't have the long scope of history. Such that we even forget some of our own formative moments in forming the country like the Spanish-American War and the Philippine insurgency and other things. But those are important to you to make the case that World War I gave birth to modern American intelligence. You have to show what we collectively had or did not have in those earlier conflicts and how, again, maybe they planted some seeds for what came about in the First World War, but they, they weren't quite there yet characterize the Spanish-American War and the Philippine insurgency both in terms of what they did do regarding intelligence and, more importantly, what they really hadn't pulled together yet.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to, I'm going to divide that into two parts, the Spanish-American sure. War itself and then the Philippine insurgency, which, which followed. So in the, in the run-up to the Spanish-American War, the um, Military Intelligence Division, and it had a variety of different names during that period, during the period that my book covers. I'm just going to call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Wagner was actually ahead of it. Uh, when the Spanish-American War was was, was in the run-up to the Spanish-American War. And the Military Intelligence Division and the Office of Naval Intelligence did a whole lot of intelligence preparation uh, for a war with the Spanish um, and um, were major inputs then to, to war plans, right? Uh, we also had an, um, an experience in the run-up to the war uh, with um, attempted politicization at a, at a very high level. Um, Wagner was invited by the Secretary of War to come brief on Cuba and this, you know, the circumstances mm-hmm. in Cuba as we're about to send the U.S. Army there, brief the, the Secretary and also the President. And uh, during the course of this, he mentioned, um, you know, yellow fever in Cuba, which is, you know, presently raging at this time of year. Mm. And uh, American troops are not, you know, not going to handle this well. This, this, This will be a serious problem. And uh, the secretary of war was incensed that this <laughs> intelligence guy would deign to deliver, you know, news that might imply that the military plans that, you know, the secretary and the president were contemplating might not be, you know, optimal and basically, you know, uh, uh, threatened to, you know, see that he never got promoted again or, you know, face career consequences. Wow. Um, but to his credit, you know, he st- 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 stuck to his guns. Um, that's fascinating for two reasons, Mark. Mm-hmm. One, yeah. one is that we, we have a case study of
0: politicization or some version of it as early as, what, 1898? That would have been. Yeah. But secondly, and this caught my ear, you just said that you had essentially an intelligence guy, one of the early ones, briefing the president of the United States. Yeah. Which, yes, you had people who were in spy rings talking to Washington, and you had Lincoln getting – you know, Pinkerton talking to him about some collection. But when it comes to what we would call foreign intelligence, something involving u s foreign policy, national security, as as far as I know, there weren't a lot of briefings for presidents before this
1: no. and and there wouldn't be actually through the entire, you know up up through the end of World War one, actually. Right. Um, a few presidents come and go very, very briefly in my book. <laughs> uh, but the the bulk of what we're what my book is talking about is intelligence done for. Cabinet-level departments, and for military right. forces in the field, intelligence right, right. done for the War Department, for the Navy Department, and mm-hmm. for the Department of State, and mm-hmm. I don't touch on it a lot, but for Justice also during, during World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, presidents presidents pop in and out here, and, yeah. and this was a you know a, a notable occasion because it was a very rare event, uh, no question about that. So a lot of the you know the the two um, service intel organizations put together a lot of you know intel, a lot of reference materials on Cuba and all that sort of stuff in the run up to the war, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, for the actual war itself, both offices were all but disestablished. They were left with literally one or two people, and um, uh, you know mm-hmm. the, the the officers who'd been part of it were actually sent to army and navy units to actually like go operate, mm-hmm. right? But interestingly enough, the um, the U.S. Army commander um, in Cuba didn't actually even want to have an intel officer and an intel staff at his headquarters. Uh, so Wagner, who would have been an obvious guy, wandered off and ended up uh, working in, the, in, in Puerto Rico, supporting the U.S. commander there, not in Cuba, which was sort of the, the big show in the, in the Caribbean. Hmm. Uh, he got his, uh, he got his uh, you know, um, uh, satisfaction later when he wrote a kind of a lessons learned after action report, not really mm-hmm. an intel function, but on how the war was gone and criticized heavily the U.S. commander Oof. in Cuba.
0: Um, Do I understand right that at least some of the concern with the army – Having spies in the Caribbean was an ethical concern, yes they said we that's not what we do
1: yes uh yeah e- ethical concerns are, are are very important and are a very limiting factor in u s intelligence uh, in this period up to when we enter World War one and then that changes right and I argue that that's, that change sticks actually, and then mm-hmm. one of the key things that comes out of World War one or is going to come out of World War one later in our conversation is that the it be, it came more and more accepted that it is ethical to have peacetime espionage as well. Okay. Okay, so that's that's basically what happened, uh, you know, with regard to the Spanish-American War. Um, and in the Philippines then, so after, after the United States seized the Philippines from Spain, uh, oddly enough, a, a rather large number of Filipinos uh, didn't like simply being transferred as colonial subjects from <laughs> from Spain to the United Imagine States, that. indeed. And an insurgency started in, in a good bit of the Philippines. And the United States Army, at varying levels of intensity, would be involved in fighting that for uh, roughly a decade. And so we're talking here counterinsurgency. Mm. And uh, what you saw there then was a, a lot of, you know, really grassroots learning in the Army, out in the field, in the various, you know, far-flung bits of the Philippines. Mm. And one of the key innovations um, that they came up with was... Uh, intelligence officers in one region, in one area, would keep card files, uh, which were a pretty new technology, not brand new, but a pretty new technology at this Mm -hmm. time, which is kind of mind boggling to think about, would keep card files on the insurgents in their area. right? They're tracking the personalities in the insurgent networks in their area. Mm -hmm. And every card, they make two of them actually, one for local use and they send another one up to higher headquarters. So the next higher headquarters has a visibility on sort of the overall operational picture. And anytime they get, you know, revised or additional information about somebody who's already in their card file, they'll, you know, amend it here and again, make another copy and send it up to higher headquarters. Um, and you also, by the way, um, in uh, the Philippines, start to get some intelligence officers, and I point here particularly at, a, at an officer named uh, Ralph Van Diemen, yeah. uh, who also starts to be a, um, very concerned about counterespionage issues, and in particular, not so much counterespionage against the Fili- Filipino insurgents, uh, um, but rather against the Japanese. Uh-huh. And the Japanese. Obviously, we don't fight the Japanese in World War One, and, and indeed, nominally they're a, an ally in World War One. But there is a great deal of concern throughout this entire period about the potential threat uh, of Japan and. Um, it, and from an intel perspective, particularly particularly the espionage uh, threat from Japan, and uh, you know maybe a little bit of a of a, of a diversion here, but mm-hmm. I'll just mention that it is sort of interesting these days in the intelligence business. We talk about certain country being countries being hard targets, right? Like you know Russia right. and North Korea and China, right? It's really hard to collect intelligence on these countries. For a variety of reasons, including that they tend to you know be police states and have a lot of domestic security and all that sort of stuff. Well, you look at the way the intelligence officers of you know 1905, 1915, mm-hmm. 1925 were talking about Japan and it's you know they're not Same using language. the term hard target, nobody's invented it but that, right. like in our terms that's what it is that's what right. it was to them
0: and it would have it would have been very hard, not just logistically, although that's true also. But just because Japan had had only opened up relatively recently and there's not a massive amount of Western population there to use for spying. So
1: I would imagine it'd be very difficult. Absolutely. And I just add also that um, while there's great concern in the U.S. military and in particular, you know, among its very small number of intelligence personnel Mm -hmm. about – the Japanese threat, the military threat, and also the Japanese espionage threat. There's a great deal of admiration in the US military for Japan as well, because um, Japan has gone from being um, way behind the state of the art with its military to being top notch. Mm And um, really, frankly, ahead in a lot of ways of what the U.S. military was at the time, and like right. gosh, they could do it. Like, couldn't? Wouldn't it be yeah. great if we did this stuff
0: too? And and it, it caught my eye as well, just because something I think I'd seen tangentially years ago, but not not focused on, is that during the Russo-Japanese War, uh, ONI did produce updates for the president and the cabinet. Yeah. So there there is some service of the senior level policymakers, not just. You know, tactical commanders or the bureaucracy within the department. Yes, which is absolutely fascinating.
1: And and indeed, also the both the um, the U.S. military sent uh, quite a number of, of observers to observe the war, both from the Japanese side and from the Russian side, yeah. and, as did a great many other countries, including all the leading powers of Europe. And one of the observers actually was a guy named John J. Pershing, who we may hear of something from later.
0: that so, that, that that's a name that sticks with me. So we'll, we'll come back to it. The other detail I don't want to let go before we move into that, uh, just before the First World War, is something that, and there, the, your book is full of these. But one is regarding the Philippines that, you know, O and I was asked, okay, you know, what what do you have on the Philippines as we're get, getting involved in this war, and this is
1: what 1898, and what does O and I come up with? As I recall, they come up with an article from the Encyclopaedia Britannica. <laughs> Wow. I mean, I mean, better than nothing, at least they had a copy of the yeah. Open source, right? Yeah, open source. Yeah. But, hmm. but, right, so this, you know, this indicates that you know, the overall intel effort in, in Washington in the War Department and the Navy Department is not very big, and, it, and therefore it necessarily has to be focused in certain places. And, you know, and, and among the key things, by the way, yeah. um, that U.S. intelligence was focused on at the time that we don't tend to think about a whole lot was, um, one, Canada, which uh, you know, belonged to Britain at the time, mm-hmm. and Mexico. Yeah. Right? right? Uh you know the the possibility that we might have to go operate in some place like the Philippines well mm-hmm. that's you know before the Spanish-American War comes along that doesn't seem very likely like it doesn't make the the list of what we're going to do with our you know very limited number of of you know uh, hours in the work week.
0: Right. So it's fair to say that until at least what the the mid 1910s that people had had poked and prodded and thought
1: about some of these issues but it hadn't really institutionalized in the United States I th- government. I think that's I think that's fair. There's been a lot of thinking, and there have been micro scale doings, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, not institutionalized in any kind of you know really serious um, um, and um, substantial, I guess I would say kind of way.
0: And then war comes, and at first the United States, of course, is not directly involved, but kind of sees even before we get involved, sees on the horizon. This this is a severe national security threat in part because of a lot of German actions against United States shipping and support to uh, England, et cetera. But it didn't spur the the kind of institutionalization that came during the conflict because a lot of what you talk about is the actual oper- operationalization of intelligence in the battlefield. But it, it does begin before the war itself in terms of some of the activities like the ONI – using collection and using undercover officers. Talk through how that mechanism developed.
1: Yeah, um, so there started, so during this period of, you know, um, the late summer, early fall of 1914 when the war starts in Europe, uh, up through, up until April 1917 when the United States declares war and actually becomes a belligerent. Mm -hmm. uh, We, various components of the U.S. government start expanding or um, both their execution and also their their sort of thinking and planning about intelligence uh, and one you you touched on is is fairly late in the game before the before um, 1916 if I recall correctly but again don't quote me on this O and I starts thinking about the possibility that they're going to um, need to um, expand their espionage um, collection well, actually create an espionage collections right. capability um, and starts putting together plans for doing that. They don't get very far down the road in actually doing anything, but they put together some plans. And a lot of this depends, by the way, on making use of what we would today call commercial cover, yeah. right, of having Navy officers and the collectors um, being pretending to be, or indeed actually being, employees of private companies to give them, you know, a legitimate reason for being in a particular place, doing particular kinds of things. That implies, though, that there's no established trade craft for
0: this. That's absolutely kind of winging it and just hoping that it works. They're not kind of winging learning it. Learning lessons from the past.
1: <laughs> They're very much winging it. Wow. Yeah. Um, the the kind of espionage that. Arthur Wagner had written about in his yeah. book was, um, you know, very much an espionage related to the battlefield, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, David Kahn uh, might have called primarily visual intelligence, okay. like looking with eyeballs. Right. Visual intelligence later, and he also observational like recon. Observational recon li- later on, you know, looking at photographs. Okay, uh, but it's you know it's it ultimately revolves around eyeballs. Um, and, and certainly, you know, O and I uh, starts thinking about that sort of thing, and 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 both services, in terms of espionage, will go on to do visual intelligence, visual espionage, during the war. But also, there's more and more attention from O and I, you know, in the run up to the war, and then by both services during the war. To um, collecting what uh, David Kahn calls verbal intelligence, whether it's reporting on what people said, it's stealing documents, you know, those sorts of things. The, the kind of thing that these days we tend to reflexively think about when we think about espionage, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, you know, what did, what, what was, uh, you know, um, Aldrich Ames giving the Soviets? Well, he wasn't, you know minimally if at all was he doing things like describing the inside of the CIA headquarters what he was right. doing was giving them documents that had words on them
0: right but, but you could definitely see why in this period both were important because going into the war you had to know you know which ports had which ships that could come across and where where were Germans doing things that are purely observational but the realization, no, we need we need strategic plans, we need intentions which are easier to determine from actual documents or whispers, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely. The other thing, uh, major preparation that the United States makes during that period when we're neutral in the war mm-hmm. was in 1916, uh, the State Department actually creates an intelligence office. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, under uh, Secretary of State Leland Harrison. Uh, who, by the way, was uh, the uncle of a guy you may have heard of named Alan Dulles. Got it. Uh, yeah, his minor minor <laughs> figure later on. Um, <clears throat> but um, the State Department was motivated do, to do this because during that period that the United States is neutral, one of the things that it's doing is it is um, uh, selling a lot of munitions to the Allies, to the British, to the French, to the Russians, hmm. Uh, much to the annoyance of the Germans <laughs> and also the Austro-Hungarians. Um, <clears throat> and uh, the Germans uh, start um, conducting espionage operations here in the United States. They also start conducting sabotage operations in the United States. There's a rash of um, fire bombings of merchant ships mm-hmm. um, bound for Europe, American merchant ships bound for Europe. I think something like 36 or so of them get fire bombed. Um, you know, a, a couple of munitions depots, most famously Black Tom, outside New York City get Ta- blown up. Talk about that because I was shocked when I was teaching a graduate
0: class recently and I mentioned this. I got blank stares. Mm-hmm. Uh, people had not heard of this, which is a, a massive attack within the United States. What was the Black Tom? Yeah, incident? Black Tom
1: was the, was the name of an island mm-hmm. uh, in the New York area um, that was basically a mun- a, um, an ammunition depot. And uh, a rather large one. And in particular, in late 1916, it was, um, there was a lot of ammunition there that was bound, if I recall correctly, had been sold and was awaiting shipment, I think, to Russia, to one of the Allies. I believe it was Russia. And um, German agents, not Germans, but um, as far as we know, but Americans recruited by the Germans blew it up. Um and this was an enormous big explosion, and windows were blown out like miles and miles away. and you know, et cetera, et cetera. it was mm-hmm. a it was a big deal. Um, and people people died people like, died yeah, quite a number, of, I don't recall the death count, yeah. but yeah, quite a number of people died. Yeah. So there were things like that going on. Um, also, there were the um the Germans and the austro hungarians were conducting a lot of um, the, their diplomats, uh, their diplomatic um, Uh, uh, representation here, was conducting Mm -hmm. a lot of what seemed to the U.S. government as um, propaganda and even subversion inside the United States. And it's Mm -hmm. worth remembering that at that time, there was a very large German-American population in the United States, indeed many of whom were actually you know, in citizenship terms, German. There were a lot of actual German reserve officers Mm -hmm. uh, who, you know, had emigrated to the United States but were actually still on the rolls of the, you know, the German Army Reserve or the Austro-Hungarian Army Reserve. And indeed, a bunch of them did go back to serve there. And... This was also an era in which the second most commonly spoken language in the United States was not Spanish the way it is today. It was German, Mm. right? And so there's all these uh, things that the the German and the Austro-Hungarian diplomats are doing internally to the United States that are are problematic. And so Mm. Secretary of State Leland Harrison creates something that's uh, called the Bureau of Secret Intelligence, whose initial job is to just basically do domestic counterintelligence Mm -hmm. against these efforts by the Germans and secondarily the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, here in the u s right they 're doing a lot of this um, not actually with state department personnel but with people loaned to them by the secret service um, and and other uh, organizations um, and then over time, particularly as the you know after we get into the war, that actually expands into doing espionage overseas. We actually have the State Department running espionage operations, a lot of which look very much like the kinds of espionage operations that you know the CIA does these days or that the you know, the FSB does against us. Um, uh, but it, it had its roots there in in that sort of twilight period in 1916. One of the
0: interesting developments as the war begins, of course, ONI, the Navy itself is, is expanding and the Army, the War Department realizes, okay, we're going to war. And so, of course, the intelligence functions grow and you, you have intelligence officers going out to various levels of command. But you also have the American expeditionary force itself as an entity that has an intelligence function. Right,
1: yeah. Um, so the Spanish-American War is the last time in which a major US you know, army in the field is gonna not have an intelligence officer in an intelligence shop. Mm-hmm. When Pershing is, when General John J. Pershing is selected to command the American expeditionary force, and at the time it wasn't you know realized how big it was eventually gonna get, I think mean, people were thinking maybe a division, you know, maybe something a bit bigger than that. But anyway, Pershing uh, set sail with his um, with his uh, hand-selected staff, mm-hmm. some of whom had been done intel work for him in the um, punitive expedition in Mexico just months before. Um, but he heads across, um, and actually in that first ship, he actually has exactly one intelligence officer who's designated as you're going to be an intelligence officer. Well, at least he's got one. That's he a start. At least got one. Yeah, it's Dennis Nolan. Uh, and Major then, eventually, uh, Brigadier General Dennis Nolan. And um, Pershing arrives in, in, in Britain and then France. And Pershing and his staff undergo a very steep learning curve about basically everything. But intelligence is, is certainly one of these. Mm-hmm. And the Brits and the French, you know, sort of summarize it all, say, One intel officer? Are you freaking kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and and, and the AEF's G2, as it's soon to be called, um, you know, expands radically from there. Okay. And just grows and grows and grows up to basically the end of the war.
0: And is it fair to characterize it simply as Pershing and those around him, you know, talking to the, the Brits and the French, kind of realized pretty quickly we can learn from these guys? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And and so part of the intel function is presumably them realizing as they're landing troops and especially as it really picks up later that we need more information if we're going to act uh, successfully here. But you're also getting pressure from the allies saying kind of, you know,
1: get your act together. This is no way to run an army without any information. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look, you know, World War I on the Western Front, there's a continuous front line, mm-hmm. right, that runs all the way, kind of a zigzag or a lazy S-shape, but runs all the way from the Swiss border to the North Sea. Yeah. Okay. Um, and if any of those armies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, collapses in the face of a German onslaught, they're all screwed. Right. <laughs> right. They get behind the line. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so... Um, so two two implications of that. One, as you just noted, the British and the French are like, hey, you, you know, you need to get to work on creating an intel function. And like, you know, <laughs> here's all our regulations and our field manuals and stuff on how we do intel. You can you can train your people at our intel schools, and you know, we'll loan you people, and you can embed people with us to learn. All that kind of mm-hmm. learning goes on there. Um, but also, the British and the French are very motivated to share intelligence with the American Expeditionary Force, and once the aef actually starts producing intelligence collecting and producing intelligence yeah. it similarly wants to share w- with its allies it's in everyone's enlightened self-interest right mm-hmm. you know the, the 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 allied front line is only as strong as its weakest link right, right. and intelligence is a, is a is a key component of being able to you know defend let alone actually attack
0: that all sounds very good mark but i you make it sound like out of the kindness of their hearts and some enlightened self-interest. The British and the French are helping the United States create this intelligence capability. But is there any evidence they were seeking to influence as well as inform that they were in a sense, uh, not propagandizing, but, but certainly pushing the United States where they wanted it to go for their own reasons, even if it
1: wasn't a perfect fit for the United States at that time? Um, Sort of, Um, it it depends on how you define that question. So I would say in terms of battlefield kinds of intelligence, um, no, Mm -hmm. Uh, but um, back of that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the, the going in position from the British and the French was that the American Expeditionary Force should not operate as an independent army. Mm -hmm. Rather, Pershing should sort of be an administrator, uh, right, uh, for American troops who would be slotted into British divisions Mm -hmm. and slotted into French divisions. And uh, Pershing and Wilson uh, were having none of that. (laughs) We were gonna have a U.S. Army as such in the war, occupying a hunk of the front line. And once that was determined, right, you know, it was it was in the French and British self interest to, that makes sense, right? Now, however, farther afield, mm. the United States wants to get into the espionage business, and here, outside the battlefield context, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And here we're talking. Um, um, particularly, not exclusively, but particularly about espionage operations run out of neutral countries, mm. much like what would happen with Switzerland and Alan Dulles during World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and in, in the Cold War, Austria was, an, you know, an infamous hotbed of espionage. Um, similar sort of deal, right? Um, Switzerland, um, Denmark, Sweden... Um, were, you know, uh, oh, in the Netherlands, uh, Switzerland mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. Netherlands, probably mm-hmm. the two most important actually, were, um, you know, gateways into spying on Germany or to a much lesser extent spying on the Austro-Hungarians. Mm-hmm. And here, the British would have been quite happy if the Americans didn't do that. Like, Because um, they were doing their own thing. They were doing their own thing. They didn't want us in the way. Um, They didn't want us screwing up because we didn't have nearly as much experience as they did. Well, let me rephrase this. They didn't have a lot of experience either, Mm -hmm. uh, right, three years or something at this point. But that still was – that's the steep part of the learning curve. That's still a whole lot more qualitatively, even if not chronologically, than we had. Mm -hmm. Um, They also, interestingly enough, were afraid, and I think with some reason, that if – you know, US case officers, as we would call them today, were out there trying to recruit spies that we were gonna drive up the prices, <laughs> right? That, you know, the Americans, you know, what do the Americans have? They have lots of people and they have lots of money, mm-hmm. right? And it's, you know, and, and if suddenly the Americans start throwing a lot of cash around, uh, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna steal all our the good sources from us, the British and the French. Um, and there are bits and pieces of suggesting that in various places, in, in you know in in, in those venues and, and and other places you know the British and the French sometimes tried to sort of you know yep. nudge us a little bit with what they were or weren't sharing with us but that said um, there was actually a lot of cooperation not just exchanging of intel um, there in the field in the you know in these in these countries away from the front lines um, but also joint operations actually joint operations being run like. By Americans with French or Americans with Brits or whoever and that's new for America right we yes. didn 't have
0: any history of that
1: right that's that's true um, this general notion of of intelligence sharing and and joint intelligence cooperation mm-hmm. um, um, joint intelligence operations is as far as I know mm-hmm. n- novel in World War I it's possible there may have been some super minor stuff going on in the Boxer Rebellion in China mm-hmm. I'm not sure mm-hmm. there was, but th- okay. there's not a lot of you know yeah. venues in which mm-hmm. we'd gone to war as part of a, of a coalition before uh, and so yeah mm-hmm. um, this was this was very much novel um, okay. in, in World War and, one so, and one of the important things that's going to going to continue up in the interwar period, obviously during World War II and right yeah. up through today yep. you researched
0: the hell out of the actual uh, operations and individual memos and conversations regarding all of this during the war itself. But let me take it up one level.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, is it fair to characterize it as the the ONI, the Navy, the whatever it was called then, MID, military MDI, intelligence division, military intelligence yeah. division in the Army War Department, yeah. as well as the American Expeditionary Forces Intel unit. That all of them were doing both some espionage and counter
1: espionage. Yes. A different yes. balance, but all of them were getting experience in all of these things. That is that is correct. Yes, and the and I'm glad you mentioned that because the counterintelligence and counter espionage effort here in the United States, which actually State Department had got into initially, mm-hmm. um, was a was a major component of U.S. intelligence efforts in the war. Mm-hmm. It was a really big deal and. Um, Military Intelligence Division and the Office of Naval Intelligence put a lot of effort into it, um, working frequently in cooperation with, sometimes at cross purposes with the Department of Justice. And, right. and I don't really focus on that much in the book, but uh, the Department of Justice and the, the the forerunner to the FBI are certainly certainly part of this.
0: But it was a massive domestic counterintelligence yes. effort, right? In part because of the fear inflated but the fear of germany's infiltrated us with hundreds of thousands of spies yeah but also you did have the black tom explosion so there was some evidence for bad things happening here and then legally you did get things like the espionage act in 1917 that allowed the government to to do more using what is now we would call intelligence units to investigate potentially dangerous americans and others in america
1: oh ab- absolutely 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 and the um, you know American intelligence paid a lot of attention. For instance, well, a c- couple of points. So first off, there was no kidding um, central power espionage and sabotage and mm-hmm. probably propaganda and subversion to some degree in that period when the United States was neutral. Once the United States entered the war, mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons, the actual level of those efforts the actual espionage and subversion etc threat went to just this side of zero. Wow. First off because the espionage act comes along pretty quickly and, mm-hmm. and there's pretty draconian penalties for for violating that mm-hmm. um, and um and secondly because now that there's a war on it becomes extraordinarily difficult for german intelligence all the way back in berlin or wherever to actually communicate with spies and agents here That's a fair point.
0: We forget the technology at the time was not
1: allowing the kinds of communication we have now. Right. And Hmm. on top of that, um, the telegraph cables and the mail uh, were censored. Mm -hmm. So there are a handful, and I mean literally a handful, of people who either were or probably were um, German spies in the United States during the time we were actually Mm At war, there's one but it's of them. Miniscule.
0: There's one of them I want to ask you about, and he went by a different name, Pablo Vabersky. Vabersky yeah. uh, what? What in brief is his story?
1: Yeah. So he was um, he was a, a an agent for the Germans, uh, recruited in Europe, uh, Spain, if I recall correctly, and uh, sent to um, infiltrate the United States through Mexico and to uh, stir up domestic unrest here in the United States. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, um, so he gets to Mexico. Um, And he starts, uh, you know, journeying up towards the U.S. border. And along the way, he ends up being accompanied slash followed slash surveilled by not only an American agent, but also a British agent. Uh, And he's basically arrested the moment he gets across the border. (laughs) uh, And, uh, yeah. Uh, Well, that's impressive.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So we've talked about uh, espionage. We've talked about counter espionage. You mentioned a bit about propaganda Um, And we won't get too much into that, but the fact is some of these intelligence units were doing anti-German propaganda uh, positively. Mm -hmm. But the, the analysis part, we haven't talked about as much. There was one effort during the war to do not analysis at the tactical level, right? Not briefing the commander, this is where we think the troops are, but up at the strategic level. And it was a group with the fascinating, and I'll try to pronounce it with capital letters in both words so it sounds as important as it, as it uh, comes across as. It's called The Inquiry. What was the inquiry, who was involved, and what evidence do we have that the material they produced was useful to anyone?
1: Yeah, so the inquiry was uh, set up fairly late in the war, um, 1918, to um, start thinking for the US government about what the peace might look like to do some planning for that, which is a, you know a wonderful endeavor. Um, they were um, a lot of you know academics and other people with actual with actual expertise in various parts of Europe and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was a pretty high powered, um, capable group. Um, they received a lot of intel um, from the military and uh, from military intelligence, and then um, you know after the war was over. And you get to the uh, to the peace talks at uh, at Versailles mm-hmm. um, they actually go or at least a lot of them do mm-hmm. and are augmented by a bunch of US government Intel officers okay um, the thing is though that they're um, not tremendously useful <laughs> um, certainly not with regard to the big picture issues mm-hmm. because um, basically Wilson is is running the show yeah. right and you know there's a nominally you know officially there's a a five-person U.S. delegation with support staff, obviously mm-hmm. a five-person U.S. delegation, of whom you know Wilson, uh, President Wilson, is one. But um, basically, Wilson's the only one who mattered, mm-hmm. uh, and he had his own ideas. And there was, you know, as a practical matter, the intel input um, to those to the U.S. president um, in those in those peace talks was was minimal. Right. Uh, but it's a you know it's a it's an interesting sort of forerunner. Um, It's not, formally speaking, governmental initially. It's not governmental initially, formally speaking. Uh, It sort of gets grafted on towards, uh, you know, uh, in 1918, 1919. But it's kind of an interesting forerunner of, say, the um, Office of Strategic Services Research and Analysis branch during World War II. Whole lot of academics and people with like real serious intellectual you know gravitas and and deep expertise in this part of the world or that part of the world.
0: So the difference Mm -hmm. is that they didn't governmentalize it, if I can make up that word, uh, right? They didn't make the the members of the inquiry formal government employees. Yeah. They just kind of used them for exactly. a while That's out of a, the yeah. patriotism in their hearts. But it did set the stage for that OSS effort, which then in turn set the stage for a professional analytic core, which had experts of areas around the world as we have now.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, it's also worth noting that while in Washington, there was not a lot of what you and I would recognize as intelligence analysis going on. There was some, mm-hmm. uh, not a lot, and most of it wasn't particularly sophisticated. It tended to be more, you know, putting together, you know, reference works and stuff like that, right? Um, which is analysis, yeah. but not very sophisticated. But yeah. you know, everybody has to start somewhere. That's not true in, in the AEF. The AEF is doing much more, you know, high speed things in, in a lot of ways. Mm. But some useful thinking is done about that, that is, is useful to intelligence analysis into the sort of future practice of intelligence analysis. And um, in the war department, <clears throat> in, in the military intelligence division that is to say, they, they look at this war that we're engaged in, right? And they see a war not just of armies in the field and navies at sea against each other, but of entire societies, right? Entire economies, entire sort of ideological systems, the whole kit and caboodle where it's all in conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they um, says so number one, number two, they also see that um, that even with regard to the military effort, right? That we're in a we're in an age of industrial warfare, mm-hmm. and so the weapons and the and the ammunition have to come from somewhere. They come from factories, and factories uh, is you know civilians work in factories, yeah. and so things like mm-hmm. the um, the political preferences of the civilians and their loyalties and. All you know their morale and all of this sort of their 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 commitment to the war effort. All that is like a part of the war effort, right? Mm-hmm. Or if you are, um, uh, you know, uh, if someone out there is encouraging draft evasion, well, that's that's keeping a soldier off the battlefield every bit as much as as shooting the soldier in France would do, yeah. right? Uh, so they're they're seeing this as wars of entire societies, and so they say, okay, what kinds of information are our um, decision makers going to need in order to you know guide this or future kinds of wars. Mm-hmm. And they break it down into four types. They need military information, obviously. So, sure. you know, right, size and strength of foreign military forces and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. They need economic information about potential adversaries. Mm-hmm. Um, they need political information, you know, uh, foreign policies and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And they need what they call psychological information. Mm-hmm. Um, which is... Um, you know, these days we would, we would think of as primarily as sort of cultural um, intelligence. And, you know, unsurprisingly, a lot of this, you know, you look at a lot of these products with today's eyes and they're like, you know, trafficking in a whole lot of really um, fairly distasteful, you know, uh, racist stereotypes sometime, sometimes. But the notion that actually understanding the culture of your adversary that or your potential adversaries or for that matter of your potential allies mm-hmm. is important, mm-hmm. right, um, and that's an insight they had here. And if you look this typology of military um, economic, political and psychological uh, if I recall correctly, they're actually using psychologic, not psychological huh. um, intelligence is a sort of a fundamental typology of what we need It carries forward into the um, into the early cold War at least in the in the u s intelligence community or now, in what what became the u s intelligence community
0: The one thing we haven't talked about much is the actual intelligence in combat the the u s u s. forces did engage in serious combat to two main areas the the salient uh, for a few days Sammy Elf, right uh, and then eventually the the, the big offensive yeah. right So if I understand it right, the intelligence in combat was decent to good, not yep. as good as the British and French, but, but entirely respectable, but good, and across several different aspects of intelligence, they got experience in everything, the espionage, the counterespionage, the propaganda, reconnaissance, signals work, that you actually had an experience and you recognize everything that happens in modern intelligence during those actual battlefield events.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that's one of the uh, points that I try and make in my book is that there's a realization that comes to the United States sort of intelligence world during, um, well, actually even Sort of, it's creeping up on them even before we enter world war 1 but it really blossoms during world war 1 that um we are best able to figure out what's going on if we bring multiple different sources and multiple different forms of intelligence collection to bear on the same problem what an idea i know crazy huh uh all source intelligence analysis um so yeah and so yes um right there was um there was Aerial reconnaissance, um, most notably, though not exclusively, from aerial photography, which really blossoms and gets quite sophisticated during this period. There's uh, signals intercept and code breaking. Mm -hmm. And by the way, if we're breaking their codes, they're probably breaking our codes. So there's this huge effort, by the way, into building American code systems so that we can replace them when we think they've been compromised. Um, There is, you know, all sorts of visual intelligence Um, including right down to, you know, literally sending patrols out into no man's land and Mm -hmm. that sort of like super dangerous stuff, Mm -hmm. by the way. Um, there is um, exploit what we would call, you know, um, exploitation of foreign material, right? Like, so, okay, you know, a a, um, a German fighter plane has uh, crashed uh, behind our lines. Let's go see what the, you know, let's analyze it and see what the latest, you know, Mm -hmm. German aviation technology is and maybe we can steal some of it or, you know, things like this. That
0: doesn't sound, now, maybe for America that's new, but that doesn't sound new to me. That's like Caesar in Gaul. Finding some new slingshot that you know that they're using against Roman troops and saying we need to figure out what they're doing and its range that that's not new in the history of warfare
1: but it's new for America being in a war of this size right and it's also being put into an institutionalized or bu- bureaucratized well bureaucratized and institutionalized yeah. kind of context yeah okay. absolutely uh, there's open source um, you know mm-hmm. reading German newspapers and whatnot usually acquired through these neutral countries like Switzerland. Um there's liaison sharing intelligence with your allies. Um, and on the on the signals intelligence side, it's not just a question of intercepting and breaking um, enemy communications, both radio and also um, uh, telegraph and 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 field telegraph and field telephone, but also of uh, what would uh, would come to be known as traffic analysis. Hmm. so, you look by looking at the patterns of German radio communications. Even if you're not able to read what they're saying, mm-hmm. you can get the call sign, i.e., the the code name, if you will, of the radio sending the message, mm-hmm. and the call sign of the of the of the radio they're sending it to. Those are not encrypted, right? So you can tell who's talking to whom for how long and when, mm-hmm. and and you look at the patterns in this. This is something we learned um, fr- from the Allies. We learned a lot of this from the Allies. Um, You look in the patterns of this, and you're able to make um, inferences about um, what the Germans are up to. Ah, before uh, before a raid, you know, I'm just making this up, but before a raid, divisional and German divisional and regimental radio networks will do thus and such. So look for that pattern, (laughs) right? For instance, Mm -hmm. right? And also, um, you know, espionage. Um, So this is. Uh, espionage deep inside Germany isn't being done by the American Expeditionary Forces, but it's being done directly to help them. Mm. The British and the French, with some help from the Americans late on, particularly operating out of Denmark, um, have put together um, train-watching networks uh, inside of Germany and inside of occupied um, Belgium and France. Mm. And the idea here is that... um, when the germans are moving or the austro-hungarians for that matter are moving divisions from one front to another or you know potentially even raising new divisions they go on trains you know until the last little way they go on trains and we know that a you know uh, a german infantry regiment will require this many railroad cars of this type and a german cavalry regiment mm-hmm. will require a different number of railroad cars of of this type and some of them will be like you know for carrying horses and so forth mm-hmm. and so on and you put and you recruit as spies people deep in the enemy interior, who... Just to watch the trains. Exactly, and report on that. And mm-hmm. so you can tell things like, you know, oh, they're moving some, some, some uh, you know divisions from the east to the west. There might be an offensive coming, or the other way around, or things like that, to give kind of strategic warning mm-hmm. of, you know, major German moves. Um, and even, you know, on the, on the um, aerial reconnaissance side, not on aerial photography, but like on just visual aerial reconnaissance, they even discover they're able to do, and they, again, they learn this from the French, mm-hmm. um, they even discover that they're able to do useful things at night um hmm. you can see you can see fires at night you mm-hmm. can see um remember this is an era in which trains are being oper- you know are burning coal you can actually you can see, see the locomotives that are yeah. driving right so and yeah. and and if you map where you see fires and where you see trains at night over time on a map you can often see big german forces moving from way back over there to mm. getting closer and closer and closer. Uh, There'll be, be an attack. So yeah. there's all kinds of actually really sophisticated things that the um, AEF uh, intel folks, again, most of them, most of it learned from the Allies, um, are doing. Okay, I think you've convinced me. Okay, I I, I, I think that
0: I, I was wrong, and that in fact <laughs> World War I did move the ball forward more than slightly. Uh, I still don't feel like on the analytic point. Yes. It moved very far forward. Certainly, regarding the president, but even definitely, definitely regarding even anyone at a senior level, uh, there there doesn't seem to be much evidence, and maybe just some of it hasn't survived. But there doesn't seem to be much evidence for an advanced analytic function developing during the war. No,
1: I I think that's fair. I think in Washington, analysis is largely restricted to putting together um, reference materials. Mm -hmm. In the AEF, senior commanders Pershing, and then when he splits into the AEF into a couple of different armies, army Mm -hmm. commanders, and lower level, you know, the senior commanders, they're receiving things that are no kidding, intelligence analysis. Got it. They don't tend to the form that you and I might be familiar with from when we were in the business, but they are getting that. But in Washington, yeah, that, that will largely be a function that, 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 certainly blossoms uh, leader, not okay. in this war. That's so hard. if this is true and you had, I think people
0: forget, and we'll get to this memory issue in a moment, but pe- people forget just how massive the U.S. intervention in World War I was. Um, the, the a- how big was the AEF uh, at its so peak? So this
1: topped out at uh, something like 1.9 million, I think. A I mean, lot of
0: people. That's incredible. And of yeah. course, the people who were doing the the work there, whether it's, it's senior officers or in, enlisted, you've you've got people who then, a couple of decades later, are involved in another major conflict and certainly are aware of some of these lessons and are aware of some of the experience in various places. And yet you could have someone like Alan Dulles, a future director of central intelligence, but somebody who was involved in this, who who went on to do intelligence in World War II and then uh, help lead in the Cold War, he could say that and this is his quote, the lessons learned from bitter experience were lost and forgotten. And he was far from the only one. There were many people who said, well, it was really only World War II that led to intelligence. Why is this? Why is the legacy of intelligence in World War I so weak that even people involved in it would forget and say that it was all happening really during the Second World War?
1: Because the CIA and its predecessor, the Office of Strategic Services during World War II, have sucked almost all the air out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the short answer. Is that, you know, US intelligence history is very heavily, by no means exclusively, but mm-hmm. very heavily centered on what the CIA has done. It was created in 1947, as you know. And sort of with honorable mention then for the OSS Mm -hmm. uh, and it's sort of the brief uh, transition organization between the two of the Strategic Services Unit, which existed for, what, two years, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, what tends to get ignored is the U.S. military. Um, And it's worth remembering that even into the first several years of the existence of the CIA, like the bulk of intel assets, you know, of, of intel personnel, even within Washington, or military. Absolutely. Right? Uh, the CIA was a very small, org- like extremely small organization initially, and its people, almost all of its people, were actually detailed from the State Department, mm-hmm. the Army, the Navy, or then the, the new Air Force. Yeah. Right? And, you know, Army Intelligence, for instance, was a really big player for quite a long time, mm-hmm. right? And they're, they're a successor to the—they're an inheritor, if you will, of this tradition that I've written about um, in my book. Mm-hmm. And there are certainly bits and pieces of, of World War I influence that sneak into um, the OSS. And, um, but they are few—not mm. zero, but few— But there's a lot of influence that carries forward in the U.S. military, and a lot of um, what um, uh, the military personnel who actually had a background uh, in the OSS, the military personnel in the OSS who had like been in the military as opposed to like join the OSS, we'll commission you, right? They would have had some exposure to this, you know. The fact that intel is now like, you know, the subject of a great many army, they weren't called field manuals at the time, but a gazillion army field manuals and technical manuals and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And and like, well, of course, a battalion and a regiment and a brigade and a division and a corps and an army in the field all have intel staffs, Mm -hmm. right? And of course, we have security people out there who are, you know, hunting spies and Mm And uh, you know, of course, sensitive people in, in, in people in sensitive positions, we look into their background and all these kinds of things. They just remember that wasn't something that the army in in, in Cuba in eighteen ninety eight was doing at all. Yeah, right. Yeah. and now it's just like it's like if you're in the military, you don't even notice it. It's like in the like you don't question it. Like, of course, this is this is an intrinsic part of the military business. Like, so what? Right. I mean, of course. <laughs> right. That's where the Biggest legacy is.
0: Let me posit uh, a couple of of points here, and and please uh, agree with me to make me sound smart, or disagree with me to correct me. One is, and and I'll and I'll posit this based in part on what I, I've read from your research, that part of this is due to the CIA in the 1950s, in particular, being much better at propagandizing, at selling the story of you know, we great warriors in the OSS and now the CIA are doing great things, similar to the way that the FBI did about chasing gangsters and criminals in the 20s, the G-men in the 20s and 30s, going after everyone from, you know, organized crime to uh, communist spies in the country. And the military just wasn't very good at it, that all these people you talked about who had this experience in the First World War, they were not writing the dozens or hundreds of books like former OSS officers tended to do in the early Cold War.
1: So what do you make of that? No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, and, I, yeah, and you put your finger on it too. It started with the OSS mm-hmm. uh, after the war. Yeah. Um, and uh, my friend Chris Moran has written um, well about this. Others have, yeah. have, have, have touched on it as well, is that there was a very conscious decision after the war um, by you know um, OSS veterans um, including Donovan, that, like, we should we should tell our story. Because, hmm. one, we did good stuff and we're proud of it and so forth and so on. And, two, like, this is an important function of government, uh, right? Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you had Hollywood movies made about the OSS, for crying out loud, right? And then Alan Dulles, you know, the... Um, if he was like fifth director of the CIA, but, you know, for most of the 50s most of the Eisenhower administration, right? And he's a minor celebrity, right? Um, So, yeah, um, I think it's entirely fair to say that the OSS and the CIA um, had better PR. But then what's the flip side of that? Why
0: is it that with hundreds or thousands of intelligence personnel in these various areas of what, you know, the U.S. military um, and even the State Department and even a bit in the Justice Department in World War I... Why is it that they were either so bad at what the OSS veterans did well, or why were they so
1: disinterested in doing it at all? You mean publicizing what they did? Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So it's it's an interesting question, um, and I've um, I mean a couple things. There were a certain number of um, memoirs written mm-hmm. by U.S. intelligence um, veterans of World War One. I'm actually working on an article on this subject. It was a pretty mm-hmm. small number. I think I came up with something like 25, a bunch of which were actually published, like, after World War II. Uh, uh, one of them okay. as recently as 15 years or so ago. Um, so there were not very many. Uh, why? Not entirely clear. But I think part of it um, is that there wasn't a great understanding in the U.S. public of what intelligence was. Um, you know, the U.S. public, to the extent they were aware of any of this, um, or thought they knew something about this, they thought they knew about espionage. Hmm. And their understanding of what that was bore about as much resemblance <laughs> to reality as James Bond does to today's reality, right? <laughs> um, there were a certain number of, actually quite a few magazine articles and one or two books I can think of written by veterans that were basically explainers about either intel generally or, you know, some slice of it. Um, but, but I don't think there was much of a market um, was would be would be would be part of it okay um, also you know and I'm speculating here but um, also um, you know a lot of the ways in which the um, Americans um, tended um, to remember the war in the interwar period were you know pretty negative mm. right um, this was a this was, a, you know, the trenches of France were not exactly a lot of fun, and we're not entirely sure what we were fighting for. Is there's certainly no, um, you know, good bumper sticker for yeah. what this war was about, right? And, and 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 here I'm I'm drawing particularly on a really wonderful historiographical mm-hmm. article published, done about seven eight years ago by Jennifer Keene of Chapman University, of whom I'm an enormous fan. She mm-hmm. does amazing work and is just a, 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 a wonderful person and a, and a and a great mentor to a great many people. Um, But she says, look, you know, most of our major wars have had big bumper stickers, right? So the Civil War reunited the Union and ended slavery, right? And World War II defeated fascism and, and ended the Holocaust. Solid narratives. Yeah. And the Cold War was this global clash of communism against uh, d- democracy. And Vietnam War was a mistake uh, and so forth and so on. Well, what was World War One exactly? Can you sum that up for me, David? <laughs> and give me – you got four words, right? <laughs> yeah. There's no bumper sticker that no. gets it the same way. No. Um, and um, and the memories were, were very um, – were were generally pretty negative. A lot of it, um, and again, I'm drawing on you know Jennifer's work here, but a lot of it framed by fiction mm. um, about the futility of all this. And one of the interesting things is there was a uh, a memoir written by a um, by an Intel enlisted guy, very tactical, sort of very much pointy end of the spear, mm. uh, who'd won the Medal of Honor actually, um, uh, published in the mid 1930s, and um, He's pretty enthused about his war experience, right? He hmm. felt that, you know, that um, this was a, a great adventure and, you know, is was like, you know, manly men doing man, manly things and all that sort of stuff. And he won the Medal of Honor, right? His book just flopped. Huh. Uh, and Jennifer argues um, that it's basically because this was kind of a positive spin on the war. Right. And that's not what the public thought the this war was about was. and not what they were prepared to hear. This war was a was a tragedy. It was a yeah. you know ghastly waste. It was horrifying. We see people, you know, men walking down the streets of the city who've been mutilated in the war. And you know, like, I don't I don't want a story about how fun this was. Right. Uh, so I think there was some of that going on, too.
0: That is a fascinating point, isn't it? That it's. It's not just about whether there are good stories to be told. And I, I won't spoil it for, for readers of your book, but there is actually a, a, some great stories here and some names. James McNally, I think, had some oh, great stories here, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, read that part, everyone.
0: And, and then the chase uh, after this Pablo Babersky guy. There are right. some, some good stories here that, yes, books, but they could have been movies. Mm-hmm. And yet I can't think of a great movie. First of all, and we can broaden this out to World War I in general – I can't think of a great movie about World War One. I've heard good things about the All Quiet on the Western Front remake. I've heard um, good things about a few others. But there's there's nothing that resonates as much as even like Patton did with so much of America when it came out. No. There's there's nothing no. that really brings this there's alive. Isn't. And yet film was going at this point. What was it? Gone with the Wind was 1938 or 1939. There There was the ability for a film to take a story like this, bring it to the – let people see it and feel it in a way – that was noble, but people weren't ready for it at that moment. People yeah. were thinking, we don't want to do that again. Let's kind of pretend it didn't happen.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and, and even more so, uh, and there's this wonderful book, and I'm embarrassed because I can't remember the title or the author's first name, but it's his last name is Poole, P-O-L-E. He's an mm-hmm. American scholar. Book came out, I don't know, five years or so ago. And he argues sort of, along these it. lines mm-hmm. um, that World War One changed the nature of horror fiction, both written and in film. And that the predominant, and I'm I'm probably going to vastly oversimplify his argument here. Um, So I'm a big fan of your work. If you're listening, don't hold it against me. But the predominant nature of horror up to then had been sort of gothic and haunted houses and and vampires lurking in the shadows, Dracula and all that sort of stuff. And World War I occasioned a change towards body horror. Gore. And gore, right, about the Ooh. violation of the human body. Sounds like a and, future chatter guest, doesn't it? Oh, that, oh, yeah. oh he, he would be good, I think. Um, yeah, and, and even the beginnings of what we now represent, what we would now call the zombie genre, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, right, and this is, you know, that's not an evolution that you get if, if there's no. positive memories about the noble thing we thing right. we did. In the It's world. a hard sell. Yeah.
0: It's a hard sell. <laughs> It's also—and and maybe this isn't as much about why, why it didn't take culturally—I mean, that's just World War I in general, much less the intelligence part, right? right? That there wasn't a, an audience for it then. But you would think then after the Second World War that you could bring out some of those stories when suddenly people were much
1: more into it, I guess? Well, the, but the—yeah, maybe. But the problem is that World War II is more recent of course. And seemed particularly recent if you were living in, say, nineteen fifty. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, World yeah. War II, you know, if if we were our age in nineteen fifty, we'd have remembered World War I. But World mm-hmm. War II was yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. World War II, the United States was in World War II longer. Mm-hmm. We lost, you know, super, super roughly four times as many people killed in mm-hmm. World War II as in World War I. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, and as I indicated, there's no good bumper sticker for what that war was, but we're yeah. real clear on what World War II was about. And it was a noble endeavor, we all think, right? You know, imagining ourselves in 1950. I mean, I still believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and also even just mundane things like, there were a lot of um, war memorials that got put up in towns around the country after World War I to yeah. honor the war dead. Great. If you go to some small town somewhere, or even, you know, downtown Arlington, Virginia, where mm-hmm. I live, there is one, right? And yeah, there's the World War I dead. And then you turn to the other side, and there's the World War II dead. Boom. And that's a longer list. Yeah. And frequently also they have, they'll have Korea and Vietnam and even some of the, mm-hmm. of, the, of the wars in the Middle East in recent times all on there, right? And the thing that was the original reason for this memorial is now like the sort of crowded out. <laughs> yeah. Not out, but it's, it's yeah. swamped by all the other stuff. Very much so. Right? So yeah. even those physical manifestations of the memory are you know, partially occluded, one might say.
0: That, is, that That feeds into uh, observation that Gerald Posner and I had when we, we re- recently talked about the JFK assassination and the importance of anniversaries, mm-hmm. that it's a chance. You know, 50-year anniversary, people are still alive. So the 50-year anniversary of, let's say, D-Day in the 1990s, you've got lots of people talking about it, or Pearl Harbor, right? 75, a little bit harder, uh, 100, almost impossible, but 100 is such a round number that you can do a hundred years, you know, 1876, and then 1976. It's it's a celebration, the Declaration of Independence, the hundred year anniversary of World War One. I, I remember thinking at the time, okay, here's a chance. And crickets. Like I I don't remember anything that broke through to me as a fan of history, as a fan of national security, as you know, American history. It was a seminal event for the United States to get involved and have one well, almost two million people involved in this. And yet the remembrance of it was muted at
1: best. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there was more attention paid to it, but, you know, <laughs> that didn't mean there was a lot. It like, didn't even come close to meaning there was a lot of attention paid to it by the general public.
0: Yeah. So it seems to me that, you know, we we probably could do a better job, we collectively as a society, you know, remembering the importance of the First World War. And obviously you've contributed to this immensely with, with your new book Other on the that, intelligence but, side, yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> right? But, it, but it, it brings out some stories, right? Yeah. It brings out the ability to talk about some of the individuals involved and, and what they did and how they did it, which is what resonates with people, right? Yeah. It's not a listing of, you know, government offices and flow charts or organizational charts, although you have that I too, have one. right? You got that. But it's, it's these stories of the, the people involved and what they did that, that really carry forward. And, and maybe there's still room for that, even if it's not a 100-year anniversary, which you, met, you missed because, you know, you weren't quite there yet. I know. <laughs> right? But maybe there still is an opportunity for some of these stories to, to resonate.
1: I would I would like to think so. And there's a, there's a lot more work to be done on uh, World War I intelligence. And there, there are some, you know, um, great human stories mm-hmm. um, that are good as stories, and also many of which are actually, you know, historically important mm-hmm. with regard to the subject, um, you know, that uh, that that certainly could be um, expanded on and I think would make great reads and, and great history. With the British and the
0: Australian experience, like, uh, to my mind, and I didn't grow up in the United Kingdom, so I can't say this with confidence, but it sure seems like Gallipoli has more of a cultural resonance with oh, yeah. Australians and Brits than Anything, perhaps everything in World War I combined to Americans. But am I missing something? Is there something that could be that story about World War I that actually makes us not necessarily feel good, but, but makes us feel that the First World War was important?
1: That's a tough one. Uh, yeah, so Australian and New Zealand, uh, Gallipoli, are yep. really sort of, I mean, uh, seminal events uh, considered today to be national tragedies. Yeah. Um, for Br- Britain, it's, it's other things, though. I mean, the Somme, I think, would be the closest to that. But for, mm-hmm. but for the British, just generally, mm-hmm. World War I is a really big deal, yeah. a really big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, for the United States, it's tough. I mean, the only, <laughs> the only thing I can really come up with that might even begin to um, get into that neighborhood, and, and frankly, I don't find it very satisfying, is that the, the largest battle mm-hmm. that the United States ever fought mm-hmm. was in World War I. It was the Mozargon campaign by far the largest battle that the US Army ever fought. Wow. Um, and, you know, not a lot of people remember it today. I mean, not every historian of World War One knows about it, but, you know, there's a good seven or eight of us. <laughs> and I, I exaggerate, that's not true. But, <laughs> but we're not exactly a big slice of the population, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, beyond that, gosh, I don't know. It's a tough one. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think there's a good answer.
0: Yeah, well, that's unfortunate because I think there's, there, there, there is a lot here to reflect on, remember, to, to learn from. Absolutely. Uh, we close our conversations here by reaching into our vaunted chatterbox oh, and finding God. a random question for you to answer. 17. Don't worry, they're rarely embarrassing. They're, they're very rarely things you look back on and say, I shouldn't have said that because of the criminal charges that came. Very <laughs> rarely does that happen. Uh, it asks you, Mark. Yes. Tell us your favorite or least favorite spy... Or political thriller, movie or TV show? You've already mentioned James Bond once, so yeah, he you can, would, he you can would, build he on that would, or you can put that would aside. would be neither
1: my favorite nor my least favorite uh, any of those particular movies. Um, I think, actually, um, um, I'm going to go with Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy by John Le Carre. Uh, which I think is just such I a... I assume on the positive side. On the positive okay, side, Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, ab- absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I don't tend to finish bad spy fiction. And, and to be honest with you, I actually don't read a lot of spy fiction, period. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I would I I would, I would, I would go with Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, uh, the book. And I also, and I know not, every, not everybody agrees, but um, I quite like the movie version that was done... The for, recent one. Yeah, 2011, 2012. Yeah. I think that's terrific, too. Um, but um, it it's this wonderful sort of self-contained world, but that has a, has a real strong flavor of, and I've just been listening to the Le Carre podcast, uh, mm-hmm. I've been talking about this, of mm-hmm. sort of the shabbiness and dinginess of early 1970s Britain and the, the kind of malaise. And, um, well, I think Le Carre is definitely a lot more cynical than I am about a lot mm-hmm. of things, mm-hmm. or was, he's passed away. Um, he really does capture a lot of the kind of real-world moral fuzziness mm-hmm. of a lot of the world of espionage, and just in a super compelling uh, and, and you know c- compelling way. Not just as a page-turner, but also just as art. Right, right. So, he doesn't always
0: posit them as dilemmas in the way we would analyze them now. He just kind of, but. He, definitely describes it as sometimes choices suck. Yeah. Right. And that comes across.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So I would go with that.
0: One thing that does not suck is your new book, which I will plug yet again, the World War One and the Foundations of American Intelligence just out. Uh, It will definitively and I won't let you argue with me here. It will definitively be uh, a huge book for for people studying U.S. military history, especially in the First World War, but even the period uh, of several decades before that but for intelligence history, it's remarkable because there's nothing else like like it out there covering this period. So thank you for sticking with it over many years and doing it. Uh, thanks for putting up with people like me who mischaracterized the era out of our ignorance. And thanks for joining me for this conversation. Well, thanks very much. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate it, Dave. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at that was chatter.